My name is Joe Dalton, entrepreneur and business coach. Welcome to Breakthrough Brands. Each week, we bring you an inspirational story and an insight to the minds of some of the top business leaders, authors, and mentors from around the globe. Whatever is needed to make you shine in life and business, you'll find it here. On this week's show, we have Declan Coyle. Declan is director of Andec, author of The Green Platform, and one of Ireland's most internationally experienced leadership training and development consultants. He is also much sought after as a conference keynote speaker. His success as a top class inspirational speaker for business leaders has in recent years been harnessed in the sports arena, where he has given regular goal setting and mental strength motivational sessions to a number of All-Ireland Club Championship teams. He regularly addresses and inspires senior management teams and CEOs in companies across the globe. If you wish to reach me about any of the topics covered in this episode or any other episode, you can get me on WhatsApp 086-821-0037 or email joe at jdc.ie or follow me on LinkedIn under Joseph Dalton. I also need your help to spread the word If you could please take two minutes to share, like or make a comment on this episode, I would be truly grateful. Declan Coyle, welcome to Breakthrough Brands. How are you? Very good, Joe. It's a great privilege to be here. You wrote a book called The Green Platform and the book has changed, I would have to say, thousands and thousands of people's lives around the world. Before I knew you, I've seen the book on shelves in different countries and always wondered what it was. And then through circumstances, we've actually met. But before we get into the book and the values, what the book has to someone changing their lives, tell me your story. Well, Joe, I had a very privileged upbringing. I grew up in a place called Dungiman, which I would describe as paradise on earth. It's and between Loch Crew and Loch Sheelan, the, um, the holy mountain of Loch Crew, Sleeve Nagalige, and uh, the romantic lake of Loch Sheelan, forever linked to the love story of Orwin and Sabina. And in that valley there, we had our farm. We're just lucky enough to be inside Cavan. So in our tribe, we, go, we give thanks to God every morning that we're born in Cavan. So, shocking, <laughs> shocking. So growing up on a farm... It was in the 50s, 60s, horses, cattle, sheep, pigs and all of that. And there was a thing in the neighbourhood. My father had this thing. If a man had a cow calving or hay down, he'd say, we'll go out and give that man a hand. That was the the thinking. And um, when I was 16, I read an article in a Columban mission magazine called The Far East about a missionary priest in a slum outside of Lima in Peru called El Monton, and he had 40,000 slum dwellers. So I simply said, sure, if I give out, go out and give that man a hand, he'll only have 20,000. It was that simple. Yeah. So I joined the Columbans in Dalian Park, Navan, and uh, that meant emigrating into Meath, which I did. And uh, then, uh, at 1969, was ordained. Instead of getting out to... A, a slum in the Philippines or Latin America, I was sent to Ottawa to do postgraduate studies. Then appointed to te- teach in Boston after that, but I wrote to the Superior General and I said I've had nine years of post-secondary school study. 
my problem is that I think that I know it all. But if you give me five years in the slum in the Philippines or Latin America, where the slum dwellers have been to the University of Life and survived, and they teach me, and I get this in my blood and my guts and my bones, then I'll teach anywhere. But at the moment, I have just a head full of academic knowledge and I'll perpetuate the system that I don't really believe in. So instantly I got a letter back, you're assigned to a slum in the Philippines for five years. And so we and Dungiman, that softened my cough. That, that was it, yeah. Was that, that the time Mel Marcus was? Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, there was Ferdinand Marcus was the dictator and Melda was his wife and uh, she of the shoes, shoes 3,000 yeah. pairs of shoes, one pair that would feed a, a, a barrio for a month. Yeah. But um, in the last 90 days, I buried 65 children under two years old, all who died from hunger or hunger-related diseases. To combat that, I set up feeding programs and pig projects, hen projects, cooperatives, credit unions, grameen banks, all of that. But after the five years, a Jesuit from, uh, he was from the Bronx in New York, uh, Father Dennis Murphy, he did a debrief with me. And typical Jesuit, he praised me for all the work I'd done, you know, and built me up and I, I was purring like a cat. And then he had the key question, Joe, the life changer. He said, over the past five years, are you a happier, more creative, more joyful, more innovative person? Or are you more angry and bitter and resentful? And Joe, justification is an awful word because instantly I snapped and I said, Dennis, did you hear a single thing I said? I just told you I buried 65 children who died from hunger in a world full of food. Of course I'm more angry and bitter and resentful. And he said to me, if you're coming back to this slum, bring the people joy or bring them nothing because the last thing they need is another long-faced, miserable uh, worker for justice and peace with your serious face. He said, the end must be prefigured in the means. You must live the utopia you're talking about. All your projects are merely a container the contents are your inner peace and joy. And if I want a Mercedes-Benz from you, you cannot give it to me because you haven't got it. But if I want in peace or joy from you, you still cannot give it to me because you haven't got it. And he said, you come from an angry generation and an angry generation cannot bring peace and joy to this world. He said, you still don't get the Gandhi thing, do you? I says, what do you mean the Gandhi thing? Be the change you want to see in the world. If you are the change you want to see in the world, he said, God help the world. So Be the change. That's what I say. Did, yeah. did that resonate with you at that time? Well, it brought me back then to when I was doing my postgraduate studies in Ottawa to an extraordinary man I met there, a man called Viktor Frankl, an Austrian psychiatrist. He was our visiting professor. He was tortured in Auschwitz during the Second World War. And he told me they tortured me. They broke my body. They did operations in my genitals. But he said they couldn't touch my spirit. And there I discovered the last and the greatest of the human freedoms to choose my response in any given set of circumstances. So he said, I'm not responsible for other people's actions, but I'm totally responsible for my reactions. I'm not responsible for what happens to me, but I'm totally responsible for what I do about what happens to me. And he radically changed, like it was like a paradigm shift because I had grown up in Dungiman with handed down scripts from the 12th century, 14th century, 16th century, 18th century. And I'd say things to him like, oh, he made me very angry. And he'd say, no, no, the gland, there you go. Why are you making such a poor choice? Nobody makes you angry. 
He is doing what he's doing. He's jumping up and down like a horse gone mad. But you are freely choosing to be angry. That is your choice. Good choice. Now, I remember resenting that because I was so conditioned. And I tried to explain to him that in Dungiman, people made us angry. But no, he wasn't having that. And I'd say, drop sentences in like, oh, that one, she really annoys me. He said, no, no, you are making a very poor choice there. And then he come on and he said, Declan, Declan, where is this coming from? Why, not, why do not you get it? I said, Victor, you want to know where it's coming from? It's coming from the 12th century, the 14th century, the 16th century. It's coming from my mother. Your mother? Your mother? You blame your mother? You are like the American? You blame your mother? I said, yes, because there were six of us in the family, five boys, one girl. We were in the corner of the room and we're messing, carrying on. And my mother would come in and she'd say, now stop that, carry on. You're making me very angry. It never occurred to me to say, excuse me, mammy, but of all the choices you're making, that's probably one of the poorest ones now in terms of your life quality for today. And because in our house, you weren't even allowed back answer. So there were the two seminal things that, that, number one, to be happy, to be joyful. And number two, that it's a choice I can make every day. Because growing up in Dungiman, the outer weather, we had bad days, good days. We felt you, didn't, we, you could do nothing about it. And we're right. We also felt that our inner weather, we thought we could do nothing about it. But Victor... And Dennis taught me, you can do everything about your inner weather. So you were in the Philippines. You realised then from teachings that you had in America. When did you kind of go, okay, I need to take that different direction. I need to try and reach people in a different way. Well, it came after the Philippines. I was four years back here doing education work about uh, about what we called then third world debt and uh, the... uh, unjust trade and all of that. And then I was assigned to Taiwan and I worked in a slum there for six years just speaking Chinese. Then 1990, I got married to Annette. She's Australian. And um, we set up our own company, Andec Communications. And I looked around and I saw in the corporate world the same kind of sadness and misery I saw in the slums. And I realised that it doesn't matter whether whether you're in a slum or in a a boardroom, people were still missing this joy, this happiness. And they all expected that something outside them would bring them happiness. None of them realised that they could choose it. So it came that I used to be against positive thinking, Joe, because I thought it was an American aberration, in the sense that I thought in America they're all... all, um, positive but they're not have a real good day. yeah, yeah have falseness, a good. But. but in Ireland we're all negative but we're real but beneath that that was some of the uh, surface stuff beneath that was the idea that why I was against positive thinking was that if I had an, a major tragedy if my three children were killed and you know you come along and you say oh you got to have a PMA you've got to have a positive mental attitude you've got to get on the positive green platform I'll give you a PMA and the positive green uh, uh, green platform because you must be emotionally honest. You cannot pour pink positive paint over human suffering. You honour the feeling. You cry the tears. That's not being negative. People will say, oh, you have to be positive and, and you know, have that great attitude. It, but it's deeper than that. It's, it's deeper. They're it's, only words. Yeah. It's much deeper because it's about being real. It's about being authentic. It's about being valid. And then... We have our white space, or we have the last and the greatest of the human freedoms. 
And after I've felt it, after I've honoured it, my human experience, then I have a choice. And I can choose a red platform, which is the victim, the whinge, the whine, the moan, the the poor me. And I call it a platform because underneath that platform is a septic tank of sabotage called fear. False evidence appearing real. And on that red platform, we have the ego, the false self, and it has an agenda to keep us from our happiness now. It's very good at doing that. It gets us into the past with shame or guilt or regret or into the future with fear, anxiety or worry. But like a shadow cannot live in sunshine, the ego cannot live in the now. So if we bring awareness to the present moment and awareness to the choice I can make, I can get into my white space and I can choose the green platform with the 10 most powerful words in the English language, no word more than two letters. If it is to be, it is up to me. Underneath the green platform is the field of all possibility. It's where I choose joy, where I choose creativity, where I choose innovation, where I choose to act out of a vision for my life. I act out of a template for the future and I don't keep on repeating the familiar past on the red platform. Rather, I create the future on the green platform. Okay, so what we're saying is green is living true to yourself being passionate in everything you do and, ha- and learning to have an inner peace and looking at everything positive. The red is the negative. I can't do it. I won't do it. All that negativity is the red. And the white is the inner gap between both. I'm just explaining for our audience. Yeah. The white space is you have the event, first of all. It's the trigger. Something happens. And then... I feel it, I honor, I'm emotionally honest, but then I have that round white space and there I can choose my response. I can say, this is a disaster or I can say it's a great opportunity. Like myself, you were probably bungling these around in your head, these thoughts. And when did you kind of go, traffic lights? Aha. Yeah, it was, um, it was a sentence Robert Holden used one time in a, one of the, present and I was to I was drawing to um, uh, to keep listening to him and I was drawing any images he came and he said at one stage the quality of your life depends on which platform you 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 choose to land on positive or negative and I had drawn two platforms positive negative a little man and one a happy man and a miserable man and I, I was driving home and at the traffic lights I said, ah, subliminally, red for stop, green for go. And green had also the whole idea of new life, spring, freshness, growth, development, creativity. All of that was in the whole green. And I knew to go international. And I wanted something to come out of Ireland that was life-changing, that was life-transforming. So the green platform coming out of the green island, the Emerald Isle, that would also connect with a whole green world of taking care of an environment and looking after the world. So we know that the majority of people are living in the red zone, okay, the red platform. And a lot of them, it's ingrained into them subconsciously from being a child. You know, you can't have that. Money doesn't grow on trees. Uh, You know, all that negativity that we all learn to talk, which just comes part of our speech. And that can be from our parents or our grandparents or a grade. It's, it's led up through the generations. How are people developing themselves 
to get into that green? Is it a journey they're going on? Is it, or is it, will people live in the red and die in the red and only a certain amount of people will find the green? Well, I, it's my experience that, and I said at the end of the book that some people say it'd be very difficult to live on the green platform all the time, but we all know thousands of people, you can name them, who live in it without ever being aware of it, who were on it, who lived on it. You have the Nelson Mandela's, you have the, you know, the Martin Luther King's, but you have your own neighbours at home. You have maybe your own mother. You have people like that who are consistently positive, uplifting. You have a conversation with them and you feel better than before. The conditioning is there. On an average day, we have 50,000 thoughts. Some of the neuroscientists say it's up to 80,000. But what they agree on is that 80% of those thoughts are negative. And it's that conditioning we've got because the subconscious that controls 96% of the way we act and move and have our being will not process a negative. So if I say to you, Joe, don't think of a white rabbit, bang, the white rabbit is there. A mother, a mother will say to a child, <laughs> be careful, don't drop that. The child will drop it. Or oh, I can see it coming and you, it's going to happen. You don't listen to me. The problem is the child listened. So if you look at ordinary life and where I grew up in Dungiman, we gave ourselves auto-suggestions to feel miserable. Remember, the subconscious won't process not. So we'd say, uh, we suffered from a disease and our disease was called not-so-badism. How are you doing? Not-so-bad. The subconscious won't process not bad. Hanging in there, surviving, keeping head over water. Can't complain, complain. And I got one down and clear. Uh, two steps ahead of the hairs. Yeah. And another one up in Oma or sitting up and eating a bit, the hospital bed one. And one man from Cork said, I went up the West and it drove them crazy. What do you mean you drove them crazy? I went counterculturally, he said. I said, what do you mean you went counterculturally? He says, I went all positive. <laughs> you went all positive. Yeah. yeah, he says, I discovered psychosomatically, you cannot see great and feel bad. Yeah. yeah. So that's the... It, it's interesting because just when you're talking about the children and there was something in the book that you said with my own kids, it's saying to them, instead of saying, how oh, you're naughty, yeah. You know, you go, ah, you're a great kid. Will you pick yeah. that up? Yeah. Yeah. And it's that subliminal messaging. Or yeah. is it to, to, to create them? And, you know, and I've said this before that I have my seven-year-old, I ask her, what are you? And she goes, Daddy, I'm your happy, healthy, wealthy little girl. And I drive that into her all the time because I know that's going to feed into her subconscious mind. So when she's in her 20s and her 30s, she'll always remember, I'm happy, I'm healthy. And now I'm throwing wealthy into it as well for her because I don't want her to go through those worrying stages that we all went through when we were Mm -hmm. kids because it was our own parents that had an issue. Like my mother lived in a two-bedroom place with seven kids and a mother and father and same with my father. So they grew up in that small financial risk in in city centre. And I'm trying to teach my children that life is amazing. I feel that I found the way we do things and and the way the mind works and the way that the energy flows. And I'm excited about it. But it's not new. People have discovered this 100 years ago, people 200 years ago, 5,000 years ago. But every time when you find it in every generation, you, you go, brilliant, you think it's new. But it's not. It's always been there. Why has it been depressed? Did the teachings stop people to teach them to be positive to realise that your thoughts control everything and if you do this your life can change and all your surroundings can change where did it go wrong in the centuries to kind of go 
oh no, we're going to keep everyone down. Well, I think it came from, again, your last sentence there, it was a lot about power and control and a lot of it was to do with the wars and who's right and uh, who's wrong and it was that dualism of I'm right, you're wrong and we had uh, even a religion, we had a hundred fingers pointing at the moon if the moon is God and each finger saying mine is the correct finger and missing the moon. So we had all of that over the years. But when you go through famines and wars and all of that where survival is at stake, then that inner peace, that inner joy can be lost. And that's why we owe a, we owe a huge debt of gratitude to the monks of the West and the East who maintained this and showed us how to, like, to respond with compassion to everything. But it's very often the breakthroughs came, come in small things like it's one thing we all know what to do, but doing what we know is the big gap. Even though Victor Frankl told me that way back in the 70s, it wasn't Genevieve, our eldest daughter, when I was 25. 21 years ago when she was four was the first time I actually put this into practice, lived it, because I'd known it intellectually. Well, there's a massive difference between not intellectually and being transformed so that you live it because we have people with three PhDs but they're not transformed they don't have transformation we have people to go to mass a thousand masses and they'll still cut you out of it at the car park we have people who are have all this knowledge but are not transformed a simple thing when Genevieve was four I was putting eggs in the fridge and she said Daddy I want to help you put the eggs in the fridge I said no Genevieve they're very delicate they're very fragile I'll put them in myself and she said, no, daddy, please, 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 I want to tell you. I said, okay, well, be careful, just don't drop them. So on cue, on cue she dropped Smash. the two of them. And I was about to re- react on Red Platform, and I was downloading all that parental muck from the time we were cavemen and cavewomen. I specific, and I could feel it all, and at the last second, I saw my white space, and I saw a little green platform the size of a postage stamp, and I managed to get on it. And I said, Genevieve, isn't that a very interesting design on the floor? Do you think she would take a photograph of that and show it to Mammy? And she was so stunned, Joe. She caught my leg. Little face looked up and she says, Daddy, I love you. Ah, lovely. But it was, that was the first time in my life I was conscious of making a choice, of choosing my response. So something happens and a fact has no meaning, a situation has no meaning, an event has no meaning unless I make up a story about it. So it's my story, my meaning, my interpretation. It's not my experience, but how I internalize and experience my experience that matters. So something happens, I can say, woe is me on the red platform, or I can say I can handle it on the green platform. And it's the same with questions. On the red platform, we ask poison questions. It's 100% certain you'll get poison answers. What are red platform poison questions? They're why me? What else is going to go wrong? What did I do to deserve this? Why do these things always have to happen to me? 100% certain you'll get a poison answer. Why you? Because you're a slob. Because you lacked early life love. Because your mother loved your sister more than you. But I didn't have a sister, but if you had, you would have. So we're going to get a poison, a poison yeah. answer to a poison yeah. question. But if we switch to the green platform and ask power questions, how can I, what can I? How can I turn this around and enjoy the process? How can we have more fun around here? How can we double our productivity and have our time? How can I be the very best version of myself so that those around me can flourish and shine and be the best that they can be? How can I put all kinds of a positive self-image into my daughter's head so that when she grows up, when we look at the average child at four self-image, 98% of children have a massive, great, positive self-image. 
but at 14, 98% have a negative self Yeah, a child or two ask them all to sing and they all go right and yeah. then you ask them at 13, 14 and they don't. So it's external is causing the issues. It's the internal that, that we're losing and we should That's be right. the intuition. What did you say about the Zen monk that you met? He, you asked him a question and he said, what's the difference between enlightenment and not enlightenment? And yeah. it was chopping wood and yeah. it was... What was it? Chopping wood, drawing water, drawing water. Yeah. And you said, "What was it after?" And he said, "Chopping wood and drawing water." It was very simple. I had asked him. I first I asked him, "What's Zen Buddhism?" And okay, he said, yeah, yeah. "It would take forty years to teach you Zen Buddhism." And I said, "Look, I don't." Uh, through another Columbian missionary, he was a he translator for me in Japan over in in uh, Kyoto. But he said, um, uh, "I said, look, if you cannot tell me in one sentence, you don't understand it." Oh, he said, I can give it to you in one sentence. It'll still take you 40 years to live it. So I said, okay, give it to me. And he said, you're only doing what you're doing. And I said, what do you mean you're only doing what you're doing? Because I was translating it exactly. And he said, before enlightenment, chopping wood, drawing water. After enlightenment, chopping wood, drawing water. Now, I said, maybe I'm missing something in the translation, but they actually sound exactly similar to me. And he said, no, 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 no. Totally, utterly, radically different. Before enlightenment, chopping wood, drawing water, but always with that mental noise. Why is it always me that has to chop the wood? There's no one else to draw water around me. They can do without water for the tea for the next week. I'm fed up with this. After enlightenment, I am chopping wood. I am drawing water. I am bringing love from deep within me to what I'm doing. The, the question, Joe, is that he would... is. Who are you becoming as a person while you're washing the dishes? Yeah, it's, it's, I remember once the, you know, the lovely Vietnamese monk at Thich Nhat Hand, and he said one sentence, he was giving a talk to a group in the States, and he said, um, the challenge is to respond to everything, every moment with compassion. That, in a sense, nothing gets through your awareness that you don't want to create and attract into your life. Okay. If you, we do two things in life. We think and we feel. Now, my question to people is, this is a very precious space and time we have to think and feel. Are you thinking and feeling about what you want to create and attract in your life, into your life on the green platform, or are you thinking and feeling about what you don't want to create and attract into your life on the red platform? And one man who did it very well, but he, he worked for six weeks to keep his attention on what he wanted. He was working in his body to get into a good place after an accident. But every time the thought would come in, I'll end up in a wheelchair, he banished it. And he was able to focus, get through it, yeah. to yeah. focus it. But it's though not entertaining those negative thoughts. You know that, is, it, is this what I want to create and attract? But with the negative thoughts, I used to, when I got a negative thought, I used to push it away and then... And I've learned now with a negative thought, I accept the negative thought and I then smoothly replace it with a positive where I used to go, there's yeah. a negative thought, get yeah. rid of that and go, oh, life's brilliant, life's brilliant, life's brilliant, push it through. Yeah. But it's not, it's accepting it and letting it sort of like water flow through and then let, and knowing to push it in with, with the green. You start teaching this in companies, you start developing this, the green platform. You were 
showing companies how to run a better successful company and you have some great stats you know on that how did that evolve then into your teachings and your workshops and everything well when i started i started working in the whole areas of leadership and management and uh, communication skills sales and presentation skills and personal development and as i was working in companies i saw that um you see in the early years I was very, very good at doing strategies and plans and visions and goal setting and all of that. And then over the years, I realized that something that Drucker and Buffett had said years ago is that culture will eat strategy and plans for breakfast. So then I put a lot of work into changing the culture to get that green platform, positive can-do culture. And it had almost an immediate effect in terms it translated into greater productivity and greater profits. And um, in Harvard, they did a study on, you know, when people are positive in the present, which is essentially what the Green Platform is about. But as a result of it, across a whole range of companies, they, people, they, they were 31% more productive and 37% better at sales. Now, the negative side was when a CEO would say to me, oh, this is all touchy-feely stuff. What's got to do with the bottom line? Yeah, Yeah, with the bottom line or with... And I said, okay... Do you want to know the cost of negativity, red platform, the cost of the red platform to the economy of the United States in the year 2013? He said, but you must have genuine research. I said, okay, the Harvard Business View, May edition 2014, page 62. And he said, okay, what is it? What is it? The cost of the economy in the United States that year was half a trillion dollars. If I have $1,000 bills in my hand four inches high, I'm a millionaire. If you'd like to hear the rest of this interview or other interviews that we have in our private and exclusive platform, all free, please click on the link below and you'll go straight there.